Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're going to be talking about feedback facts. There's a lot of misinformation when it comes to having a vaginal birth after a cesarean, with many people being told they are not allowed to VBAC. Often, the risks of having a VBAC are exaggerated, while the risks of a repeat cesarean are downplayed or not even brought up. That's an unbalanced conversation that does not allow you to make a true informed choice. So what are the facts? Jen Camel has answers. Stay tuned. This episode of Breakful is brought to you by Aeroflow Breast Pumps, a durable medical equipment provider specializing in helping moms receive maximum coverage and reimbursement for a breast pump through insurance. Let Aeroflow take the hassle out of getting the breast pump that's right for you. Learn more at aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash birthful. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guide meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive, pregnant, or new moms. Reduce your stress, reduce your complications, and improve your connection to your baby and partner. Learn more and sign up for a two-week free trial at expectful.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be, and Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be. Hello, hello. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. I truly enjoyed reading about the difference that the podcast is making in your lives. So keep it coming, along with your requests and your reviews. And remember that those reviews do help get the show in front of even more parents. So if you enjoy what you hear, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review in iTunes because it really helps. A big fat thank you to you. Also, Mighty Ones, do you know what next week is? Well, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the start of summer. Yay! And for the podcast, that means that we'll be switching the focus from birth professionals to birth stories as we do every summer. So this will be the last topic-centered show until the fall. Get ready because next week is the start of our birth stories for the summer series. Fun. All right. Before we jump on to today's show, here's a quick reminder that if you are a birth professional and live near Rochester, New York, or are willing to travel, I am doing a special advanced doula workshop on June 24th to talk about rethinking prenatals to support physiology and promote birth ownership. This is groundbreaking, people. We'll be exploring a new birth model that stops focusing on stages, stations, and centimeters. A model that helps birthing couples really understand what they can be doing now during pregnancy to make labor flow and really own their births. There's so much good stuff in this workshop. Can you tell I'm super excited to share it with the world? All right, go to birthful.com slash workshop to learn more. Space is limited, so don't miss out. Register at birthful.com slash workshop. Okay, so many exciting announcements. And equally exciting is the guest that I have for you today. Jen Camel is the person to talk to about all things VBAC. And so I am delighted that she's here. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Ah, it is a, it was a long time coming, and I'm glad that, that finally it's happened because I've wanted to have you on the show for such a long time now. I am grateful for you to, uh, for that you have taken the time out to do this. Well, I'm glad we were actually able to finally find a time to make it work. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So 
why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you get to be such a huge advocate for VBAC? VBAC. Well, my story began when I was pregnant with my first child. And my daughter was born in 2004. And I had a C-section for single footling breech presentation. So that means that one foot was pointing down into the pelvis. Her other foot was pointing up underneath my right rib. And then her lovely hard as a rock noggin was pushing up against my left rib. And so I was not a candidate for a vaginal delivery. And so all my plans, all my dreams of just having a normal birth flew out the window. And I suddenly found myself in this position where I was waiting desperately for my baby to turn, hoping that she would turn doing chiropractic, uh, doing the frozen peas, doing the music, doing the flashlight. I had an external cephalic version, which is also called an ECV, when I was 37 weeks pregnant, and she just would not budge. And so I received my scheduled cesarean paperwork and walked out of the hospital and just cried Mm -hmm. because I was terrified to have surgery. And so... After I had my surgery and after my daughter was born, my doc- my doctor said I'd be a great candidate for VBAC. And so I said, okay, great. Well, at least I know next time can be different, barring any complications. But then when I went out into the world, so many people couldn't believe that my doctor would even suggest a VBAC because so many people believe that it's dangerous. And so that's really where my journey began. I started collecting information for my own decision-making process. And after I had my son in 2007, I just saw how many people, how many parents and how many professionals had such a hard time finding accurate information on VBAC and really understanding not only the medical evidence, but also the politics, because the politics is a huge factor. And so I decided to start VBAC Facts two weeks postpartum with my son balanced on a boppy and reaching over him to type on my keyboard and just started it from there. And it's grown from a website to really an educational training and consulting firm, which works with people all around the world. Yeah. And I love that you are talking to everybody, to the care professionals, to the pregnant parents that want to go for VBAC and, and just really give getting them the hard evidence, the facts of this procedure. And I guess we should say what VBAC means. <laughs> We've been saying VBAC, VBAC. Um, go for it. Yeah, so VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. And when you were introducing yourself, you were you mentioned that um, your doctor said you were a great candidate for a VBAC. Can we unpack that a little bit of what that means and what the evidence says of what you know, makes a great, great candidate, candidate, what are the things to look out for? Absolutely. Well, we know from statistics that there are some parents who are generally better or not so great candidates for VBAC. And people who are considered really great candidates for VBAC are those who had their cesarean for breach or some other malpresentation, like I did. And also people who had a prior vaginal delivery. Those are considered really great candidates for VBAC because they have VBAC success rates of over 80%. And other people who might have a cesarean for FTP or that's failure to progress or um, 
Maybe they have a prior uterine rupture. So that's someone who um, ACOG says is generally not a candidate for VBAC or someone who has a T incision, generally not a candidate for VBAC. But ACOG is very clear when they use that word generally that it's really an individual decision. And you really need to look at the circumstances and you need to understand the whole picture. And so they still leave that final decision up to the patient after consultation with their provider. Yeah. And there's so much more to dive in there. I mean, we talk about FTP and all these other things, but that's briefly, in a nutshell, VBAC candidacy. And I like the fact that such a high number, the 80% success rate for for those people who have had a prior vaginal delivery and or had a breach or some sort of other malposition that in those cases, especially for the breach, you have what is called, you know, an untried pelvis, like a baby hasn't already gone through that pelvis. And sometimes that gets cited as a cause or a reason not to do a VBAC when, yeah. when in fact, that's not true. Well, it's like the chicken or the egg scenario, right? I mean, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, if you have a C-section with your first baby and they say, well, you really need to have a prior vaginal delivery in order to have a VBAC then you're really never going to have the opportunity to have a VBAC. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of factors that go into how an individual labor plays out. But we won't know whether that statistic will hold true for an individual person until they actually go through labor. Exactly. Exactly. So in terms of the dangers of VBAC, or I guess the risks, dangers is such a non non-objective word what are the risks specific, specific to VBACs in terms of complications or maternal mortality and infant mortality well with VBAC the big concern is uterine rupture and that occurs about one out of every 240 VBAC labors that are not induced and they don't receive drugs during Pitocin like Pitocin during their labor and that's called augmentation so for women whose labors begin normally, naturally, without intervention, and proceed without intervention, the rate is about 1 in 240. Now, if you induce or you augment with drugs, then it increases that risk. When we talk about um, maternal mortality, maternal mortality with EVAC is very low. In fact, when the National Institutes of Health in the United States had a big conference back in 2010, of the eight studies that they looked at measuring maternal mortality in VBACs, they did not have one reported incidence of a maternal mortality related to uterine rupture. So the overall maternal mortality rate for VBAC is about one in 26,000. So it's extremely unlikely that the mother is going to die during a VBAC. And for the baby, there about 6% of uterine ruptures results in some serious adverse outcome for the baby. So whether that's the baby dies or the baby has brain damage. So when you look at 1 in 240, which is about 0.4%, and then you take 6% of 0.4%, that's a very low risk of something really catastrophic happening to your baby. Right. And I'm glad you you broke it down that way, that it's 6% of the 1 in 240 <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, now, you mentioned uterine rupture, and that tends to be like the big, it sounds very scary, uterine rupture. Yeah. Like, it's with obstetrics, we tend to have all these words that just 
kind of are very unhelpful, you know, and and, and just blame mom's bodies, I find, um, way too much. But can you, I will not digress, can you explain to us what uterine rupture entails and what that means and what the actual risks are? You said what the risks are, but, um, you know, in terms of does it guarantee that that you know something's wrong will happen to mom or baby if there's a uterine rupture yeah so the pregnant uterus has two layers and when both of those layers separate or open that is called a uterine rupture there were a lot of, that was quite the compound question you gave me so i just defined what uterine rupture was what were the other questions <laughs> yeah sorry about that so, <laughs> why so... don't you tell me about these six factors go <laughs> That's how my brain works, Jen. That's how my brain works. Okay. I'm here to slow it down just a touch. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah. So, uterine rupture, the fact is that it's not so much a rupture as a separation of the layers. Okay. Nothing is exploding. It sounds like something is exploding, but nothing is exploding more times than not. Um, And, in fact, over 99% of the time, that separation occurs along the scar line. And so that scar is separating and the uterus opens. And so that's kind of why it's there is more of a specific risk or worry of uterine rupture happening with the VBAC because there's a scar yes. for it to to go along with. Yes. In separation. Um, so, okay. So that's the definition of uterine rupture. Then, then in terms of the separation, the risks that come from it, is there, a, like, some? what are some of the myths? Like, is there a guaranteed that if you have that, something very, very, very bad will happen to mom and baby? Or can, you know, can it be something that doctors can take care of if a uterine rupture occurs? And before you answer, I'm going to stop you and we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with your answer right after. Mighty Ones, if you are planning on getting a breast pump, I want to introduce you to Aeroflow Breast Pumps. This is a company whose sole goal is to help you navigate the process of getting your breast pump through insurance. Under the Affordable Care Act in the U.S., most insurance plans are required to provide a breast pump to pregnant or new moms. But figuring out all the details of how to finally get that pump covered and in your hands can be annoying and time-consuming. Why not let someone who knows all the ins and outs of the process take care of talking to your insurance company, getting a prescription, and filing a claim for your breast pump? Once they've sorted all of that out for you, Aeroflow Breast Pumps will then ship your pump to you free of charge as soon as your insurance will let them. And sometimes that's going to happen on the same day. Aeroflow offers a wide selection of pumps from top manufacturers, including Medilla, Spectra, Amida, Lansino, and more. Plus, they also have some fabulous resources on their page, like a breast pump comparison guide and instructional videos. Check them out at aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash birthful. And don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who got you there. And we're back. And we were talking about the, you know, the risk of uterine rupture. It, what if... What are the, like, is it a guarantee that if you have it, something really bad will happen? Well, generally, the literature says that you have about 17 to 18 minutes from the time the rupture occurs to the time that the baby starts being negatively impacted by that rupture. 
So that's where rapid diagnosis and rapid treatment via a cesarean section, or if the mom's like one push of getting that baby out, that comes into play. And so we see that in the literature when they talk about um, the blood gases in the baby's umbilical cord, that's how they measure oxygen deprivation. And there's a a change in the blood gases at about 17 to 18 minutes post-rupture. So how quickly you're able to diagnose, mobilize, and treat that uterine rupture is going to impact the outcome for the mom and baby. Okay. So what are some of the signs that a rupture is happening? Do we have clear signs? Well, about 80% of uterine ruptures are associated with some sort of change in the fetal heart rate. And that's why a lot of um, hospitals want to have continuous monitoring on VBACing moms. And that's a whole nother discussion of monitoring in VBACs, but that is the argument for monitoring. In the event of a uterine rupture, that you would ideally have a more rapid diagnosis. Surprisingly, about only 25% or one quarter of women who have a uterine rupture report abdominal pain. So that's not a very reliable symptom. And other symptoms include things like vaginal bleeding or um, a change in station. So maybe the baby is further down into the pelvis and then the baby comes back up. Um, There could be a bulge, um, stuff like that. Okay. Um, so then you you briefly mentioned that continuous fetal monitoring, that, that this is one of the reasons why they would like to do continuous fetal monitoring um, on moms that are wanting to be back. What are other things that come, you know, in terms of protocol or general wishes that come with in, in terms of what your labor experience will be like that come with um, attempting a VBAC? Well, that depends a lot on where you're birthing and who you're birthing with. Some hospitals, um, and it's also important to add into this, is that hospitals and providers might have protocols, but the parent still has, and this is in the United States, um, I'm not sure what it is in Australia, but in the United States, our, the American College of OBGYNs and legal precedent supports the ethical belief that parents are the ones who have the ultimate right with medical decision making. So even if a hospital says our policy is XYZ, and even if your provider says you have to do XYZ, it is still the parent's decision on whether they want to do that or not. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind because your provider may say, well, you have to have an IV. Well, that's a good opportunity for you to have a discussion with your provider about the pros and cons of having an IV. But also, if your provider is telling you that you have to do a lot of stuff, that might be a red flag on how they just want to have their protocol and they're not really that interested in having a dialogue with you. Yeah, and I think there's the difference between trying to identify a provider that's VBAC tolerant and or someone who's actually VBAC supportive. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge challenge because there are doctors who say, absolutely, I'm supportive of VBAC. Yeah, let's have a VBAC. But then as the pregnancy progresses and time moves on, more discussion about things that could go wrong, more discussion on, well, you're probably risked out because, or your risks are higher because. 
And the challenge is, is that unless parents really understand what the facts are, it's very, very easy for their provider to scare them and coerce them into an unnecessary cesarean. Which is a tough thing. Like, we see that a lot. <sighs> Unfortunately, w- there tends to be a lot of that within the medical system of coercion through fear and even through love of, like, you know, you've had your time, This is, but this is really right now the best thing for your baby um, without giving you the be letting you be part of the decision making process and something that's absolutely happening in your body right and it's your kid well absolutely and everyone has the same goal of a healthy mother and a healthy baby and everyone should have the same goal of a respectful birth and part of a respectful birth is parents feeling heard and parents feeling respected and parents feeling like they are part of this process as opposed to just someone to whom this is happening. And so it's really important when hiring your, hiring your provider that you're hiring someone who views you as a partner in this process rather than a dictator who expects you to just sit back and be quiet and do what you're told. Yeah, because, you know, I don't know, as, as I was researching um to talk to you today. <laughs> I was looking into all of these restrictive policies that are placed on VBACs that don't necessarily have specific evidence behind it. Like, you know, at what time, like if you can't go past 39 weeks or that labor can only last 12 hours or that your baby must weigh less than so and such or that we can't do any inductions or augmentation um, if you're going for a VBAC. Like, what should moms know in terms of these restrictive policies and how, what would be good questions to ask their care provider to see if, in fact, they are supportive and up to, you know, up to date in the literature and the facts, or if they're just going from fear and just being tolerant of it, but at the end will really, they won't get a fair chance to try for the yeah. 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 Well, the most important thing that parents can do is educate themselves so they can have an intelligent conversation and with their provider and it can be very clear about what it is that they want. And then they can move forward, forward with a plan to make that happen. And when you don't know the facts, when you're listening to your doctor and you're saying, is that true? Is that not true? When you're looking at how hospital policy and all of hospital policy, the reason why that's established, at least that's what is told to parents, is this is for your safety. But the reality is, is that a lot of hospital policy directly violates medical evidence, as well as recommendations made by national medical organizations. But unless you know what the evidence says, and unless you know what those recommendations are, it's very difficult to say I don't want that because. Right. No, absolutely. So, but are there places? So definitely moms are, you know, information. I am the biggest advocate for information and knowing knowing what's up, what the evidence says, and really figuring out your choices because that's the only way you can make an informed choice to your specific care. Um, yeah. But where can, knowing that there's, it can be such a difficult task and labor-intensive tasks to find a provider that is supportive or a hospital that is supportive. Is there, are there 
anywhere that parents can take a look? Are there any resources to try to find a more, you know, if there's a feedback supportive um, caring provider in their area or recommendations into how to interview a care provider? Okay, another multi-part question. I know, that's what I do. (laughs) Part one, um, you can actually go to vbacfacts.com and I have a whole article on how to find a VBAC supportive uh, provider and lists of various resources. And then also, if you go to vbacfacts.com backslash questions, you can see the list of questions that I think are most important for parents to ask providers. And the trick with the questions that I provide is that they're all open-ended because you want to ask the question and then you want to sit back and just listen to what they say. You don't want to be asking your provider yes or no questions. You want them to really start talking because when they start talking and when you're really listening to them, you can hear the tone of your their voice. You can really get a feel for what they're saying, the words coming out of their mouth versus what they're really thinking. Mm, fantastic. And I, I will definitely definitely link to those two resources on the show notes um, because, yes, you have, I mean, your website has so much great information there um, and people can go further with your educational program as well. Um, but so right now, Jen, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to flip the conversation and talk about the risk that come with repeat cesareans. And I'll try to ask one question at a time. We'll be right back. <laughs> How can a repower bed improve your life after baby arrives? Oh, let me count the ways. Having a rubbery power bed will eliminate all those pillows you need to get comfy when feeding since you can put the back of the bed at just the perfect angle for you. Want a quick nap but your racing mind won't stop? Then hit the massage button and melt into the mattress as it relaxes your muscles and even improves your circulation. Are your feet still swollen? Lift the bottom of the bed so you can literally put your feet up. Are you recovering from a cesarean? The Reverie Power Bed will make getting in and out of bed so much easier while giving your body proper support as you recover. No matter where you are in your exhausted pregnancy or postpartum journey, a Reverie Power Bed will help you maximize the quality of the little sleep you're getting while turning your mattress into a stress-relieving cloud of comfort. Learn more and get your own at momsneedsleep.com slash birthful. And don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. That's momsneedsleep.com slash birthful. And we are back talking about VBAC facts with Jen Camel. And all right, so one question at a time. What are the risks <laughs> that come with repeat cesareans? So with repeat cesareans, you've got a few different categories of risks. First, you have risks that are related to just the fact that it's a surgery. So you can have the risk of fever, infection, injuries to your bladder, your bowel, or your ureters. Your ureters are this little part of your body, like so many parts of our body that are really critical that a lot of people don't know about. But our ureters are the little tubes that connect your bladder to your kidneys. And if your your ureters are nicked, that is a very difficult uh, complication to recover from. And then also we have the risks of blood clots, either going to the brain, the heart, or the lungs. Um, Then we have neonatal breathing difficulties from babies that are born too early. 
because sometimes babies aren't ready to be born until 40 or 41 or 42 weeks. And when they have a scheduled C-section at 38 weeks, we see higher rates of babies being born with breathing problems because they're not going through the vaginal canal, which helps um, squeeze the fluid out of their lungs. And then we also have um, problems with future pregnancies. So things like placental abnormalities, like placenta accreta, which is when the placenta abnormally attaches to or through the uterine wall. And that's a very serious complication that I speak quite a bit about because while many parents are familiar with the risks of VBAC, or they might be familiar with just the dangers, this sort of amorphic dangers of VBAC or the dangers of uterine rupture, really they're not told of any kind of similar danger with repeat cesarean. But I like to compare the rate and complication rate of uterine rupture in a VBAC to the rate and complication rate of accreta in a repeat cesarean. And that's a complication that increases with each prior cesarean. And um, I could totally go down the rabbit hole on that, but I'm not. So placenta previa, placenta accreta, um, risk of hysterectomy, hemorrhage, ICU admission, all of those are risks of repeat cesareans. So, and and a lot of those are just the risks that come with having a cesarean. And, but I think it, it, the accreta is one that actually is more, the risk goes, it becomes higher specifically to a repeat cesarean. And like you said, the more cesareans you have, the riskier it becomes. So if you wouldn't mind, I would like to go down that rabbit hole a little bit because I think that's something that moms don't, don't get told about. A lot of people don't never hear the, that there's such a thing as a placenta accreta until it, almost too late like they've had several cesareans and that scar tissue has become such that it, it becomes you know the their placentas are adhering to the uterine wall in a in an abnormal way absolutely so through informal informal surveys i've conducted online i found that 93 percent of parents who are pregnant after a cesarean are not informed on the risks of accreta and yet the risks of VBAC and the risk of uterine rupture are continually repeated to them throughout their entire pregnancy, which really gives the pregnant person this inaccurate perception that uterine ruptures happen all the time and they're really prevalent and there are no risks that happen with a repeat cesarean. And in part of informed consent is understanding all the good stuff and all the bad stuff associated with our various options. And when you only present the bad stuff with VBAC and you don't talk about the bad stuff with repeat cesarean, you leave parents with the feeling that repeat cesareans are benign and VBACs are risky. And accreta is one of those complications. And so again, accreta is when the placenta abnormally attaches to the uterine wall it can go into the uterine muscle or it can go through the uterine wall and adhere to other abdominal structures, in most commonly the bladder. And so accreta is associated with a 70%, 7-0 cesarean hysterectomy rate. It's a very high risk procedure to have a, uh, to have a cesarean as a result of your accreta. There are many different medical professionals required in the room in order to generate a good outcome for mom and baby. 
And it's also associated with a 7% maternal mortality rate, which means one in 14 accreta moms um, end up dying from this complication, this condition. And we have a very high rate of um, preterm labor or preterm delivery associated with accreta because women often encounter complications early on in their pregnancy and they need to have an emergency cesarean very early. And then you have very low weight babies being born who are in the NICU for weeks before they're able to go home with their parents. And so it's a very serious complication, particularly if you live in a rural area because many hospitals are not equipped to attend to Accreta. And so it's really good to go to a tertiary care facility. There's actually an Accreta specialty center in Houston, Texas. And um, so it's a really serious complication and many women aren't told about it. And in fact, almost half of women who are diagnosed with Accreta heard the word Accreta for the first time when they were diagnosed with it. And that's just unconscionable. Exactly. And I, I do like... You know, from your anecdotes, 93, it was, I think it was 93, I wrote it down, 93% yeah. um, have never heard of this. And I have, you know, anecdotally, I have friends who their desires were to have many children, more than five. And because of having had an original cesarean and then having to have repeat cesareans, it got to a point where they were that impacted the number of of children they could have because they could not have, their uterus could not really have the risk of another cesarean. Um, and I think, yeah, we we're, so if you've had two or three cesareans and then that's when your accreta becomes a problem and you're hearing it for the first time, it's not just specifically to that pregnancy, it's also to your future reproductive health, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the reality is, the truth is, the risk of accreta after two cesareans is higher than the risk of uterine rupture after one cesarean. Can you repeat that? Because I like that sort of apples to apples. Yeah. 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 So the risk of placenta accreta after two cesareans is higher than the risk of uterine rupture after one cesarean. So if you're pregnant after one cesarean and you're trying to decide between VBAC and repeat cesarean, just know that if you choose a VBAC, you are accepting that higher risk of uterine rupture in that pregnancy. But if you choose a repeat cesarean, you're accepting a, a even higher risk of placenta accreta if you get pregnant a third time. And which, as you mentioned before, the risk and the care involved to deal with the placenta accreta are much more complex and multidisciplinary and require a, a bigger team of people to consult than if than for an ut a uterine rupture. Yes. So there's that factor into it. Um, I think that's also important to to realize that there are, there are different levels of complications into what is required to treat them if they happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. A creator requires a far more sophisticated response and far more uh, medical professionals present in order to generate a good outcome.
So why such a pushback against VBACs and why the, the VBAC bans and why if there are these sort of risks on both sides? Well, and that's where you get into the politics of VBAC, which is such an important thing to consider. And often when you look up VBAC information, it might tell you about uterine rupture, it might tell you about this or that. But if you don't integrate that evidence with the politics, you really don't get a full picture. And so the reasons why VBAC is difficult to access are multi-layered. It's physician preference. It's reimbursement rates for hospitals. Hospitals make more money if a mom has a C-section. There's more um, professionals involved. There's, it's, it's just a, it's a higher revenue generating exercise for them. And so it serves the hospitals financially to ban VBAC and to tell providers don't attend VBACs because it makes them more money. There's the perception of liability that if we have a VBAC and we're sued, that's gonna, um, that's gonna be a really bad thing. But the problem is, is that the liability of having more moms and babies die as a result of Accreta is also there. And there have been successful multi-million dollar lawsuits, wrongful death suits for women who died from Accreta. And Again, we have this difference between reality and the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is people only sue if they have a uterine rupture and something bad happens. But the reality is people also sue if there's a wrongful death from Accreta. And with more and more women becoming aware of Accreta and becoming aware of the unnecessary cesareans that they were subjected to due to hospital policy and due to their doctor not, quote, doing VBAC, you're going to see more lawsuits. And unfortunately, those lawsuits are going to be generated from moms and babies who die from Accreta. And what's really sad in our culture, particularly in America, is that you have to wait for these bad things to come, for these bad things to happen, and for lawsuits to be filed, and for families to be ripped apart in order to see change, because people change as a result of fear of legal lawsuits. Which is so, yeah, it is very sad that we're changing because of fear, that the system is such. I mean, because and and when I was looking through the information you had on your website, I saw that you said that as many as 48 percent of moms who are people who have a cesarean look and are pregnant again, look to have a VVAC. Um, But, you know, there's that well, almost half per half of them are not able to have the VBAC they want because they are either don't have a hospital or a provider or just the system is not set up around where they live so they can actually take advantage of that. Exactly. Exactly. And so in America, we have an almost 12% VBAC rate, which means 88% of American pregnant families are having a repeat cesarean. And when the American College of OBGYNs says that VBAC is a safe, reasonable, and appropriate option for most women, and most women are candidates, and they should be given the option of VBAC, that's a massive disconnect, because that's not what is happening out there. Women are getting pregnant after cesarean, they go to their doctor, and their doctor says, great, when should we schedule your cesarean? oh, but I wanted a VBAC. Oh, don't you know how dangerous that is? Or our hospital isn't equipped 
to offer view back. That's the one I love because we, people who go to the hospital go to it because in the event that something bad happens, they can help me. That is what hospitals market themselves as. And there's a whole host of things that could happen, even in a first-time mom, that could require immediate diagnosis in an emergency cesarean. Things like cord prolapse, and that's when the cord gets compressed between the mom's body and the baby's body, denying oxygen to the baby. That's a serious complication that needs immediate solving through a cesarean. So a hospital that says, we attend first-time moms, we attend laboring moms, we can, we can respond to that emergency cesarean of cord prolapse, also say, but somehow we're not equipped to respond to VBAC, and because society believes that VBAC is so risky, they buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I hear what you're saying. Like, if they're equipped to do the one, they are definitely already equipped to do the other. Because the response is exactly the same. You need an emergency cesarean? Let's do a stat C-section. There's, there's no difference in the response. So you can't claim that you are able to rapidly respond to some complications and not others. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's where being informed and, and, and knowing your stuff comes, it comes back to that and having a provider that actually knows their stuff as well and is supportive and will, will understand that VBACs are a viable option in, in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. What about, Jen, this idea that um, of the timing between pregnancies in terms of if you're a good candidate for VBAC or not? Like, let's unpack a little bit more what that means of being a good candidate for VBAC. So ACOG says that most people are candidates for VBAC. And in fact, I think it's easier to talk about who's not a candidate, who's generally not a candidate for VBAC for ACOG, than to talk about who is a candidate. Because right. there's only about five or six things on ACOG's um, guidelines that say these people are generally not candidates. And again, those are people who um, ACOG is still leaving that decision between the provider and the parent. So they're still leaving that a little bit open based on individual situations. So thing, people who are generally not a candidate include those with a prior uterine rupture, those who have a incision that goes into the upper part of the uterus. So that would be someone who might have what's called a special scar, a T incision, a classical incision. Um, people who have extensive surgery in the fundus, the upper part of the uterus. So that could be someone who had fibroids, uterine fibroids, and they were removed. But even those who've had uterine fibroids may still be a candidate. Again, it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, and then those who are generally not a candidate for vaginal birth anyway. So that would include someone who has placenta previa. And placenta previa is when the placenta is sitting over the cervical opening. So the baby is unable to exit the uterus without going through the placenta. And that is a very bad situation. So women who have placenta previa have a scheduled C-section so their baby can be delivered safely. So unless you have one of those conditions, you are likely a candidate for VBAC. So in terms of the, uh, the separation between one pregnancy and another, it's more on a case-by-case -case basis, and there isn't like a blanket statement of it has to be this many months before. Yeah, absolutely not. In fact, ACOG does not say there needs to be a certain number of months between pregnancies. 
And I go into that um, specific subject as well as big babies, post-dates, and two prior cesareans in a quick one-hour training I have up at academy.vbacfacts.com called The Evidence on Uterine Rupture. And I walk you through for those four factors, big babies, overdue, birth intervals, and two prior cesareans, what ACOG says, what the evidence says, and then we counter that against the policies that are prevalent across the United States. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert that there's a complete mismatch between what the evidence says and what parents are told. Yeah. And that's why we're having this conversation because we know yeah. there's a mismatch out there. That yeah. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, and and, and <laughs> yeah, it's like so much going on in the head. So much going on in the head. Yeah. One question at a time. One question at a time. <laughs> I know this is a real challenge for you today to like wait one question at a time. <laughs> I know. Okay, we're growing. We're Thank growing you for the challenge for making I mean, for making me grow within boundaries. <laughs> within safe boundaries. Safe this is a safe boundaries. place. Yes, and I choose to do so because I can also just ask you ten questions. Um, <laughs> And I will try my best to yeah. have my brain collect those questions out of the air. No, this is fun. Um, so, but yeah, no, that's back to that, that there's such a big disconnect until what wow. moms are being told and of what really the policy says. And I think, I mean, you've mentioned a lot about ACOG and I think they have re sort of recently in the past few years switched around. They had made a recommendation that really set back feedbacks. Um, and more recently they're, they're going back around that. And can you, I'm going to let you, if you would be so kind as to explain what, that what the, all that story that I just like <laughs> hinted yeah. at what that yeah. all means so, yeah there was a time when ACOG said that um, physicians should be readily available during a VBAC and then they changed that to mean immediately available and I want to say the readily available recommendation was in 1999 and the immediately available recommendation was 2004 for anesthesia well, they just say physician. Okay. They do not say anesthesia. Mm. Yeah. Whole unpacking of what immediately available means, available at, the truth about VBAC, at academy.vbacfacts.com. So, because that's a massive subject, is unpacking what that all means. But briefly, they use the word physician, not anesthesia. And then in 2004, they changed that recommendation to mean immediately available. And so what does immediately available means? They didn't say. So doctors started, uh, ho doctors and hospitals started creating their own policies of saying, well, we think immediately available means this. And one thing that was shared at the 2010 NIH National Institutes of Health VBAC conference is that a doctor who presented on this subject called a variety of different hospitals in his area. And wouldn't you guess he called six hospitals and he got six different definitions of what immediately available meant. So the idea that everyone believes immediately available means X is false. And the idea that you have to have immediately available in order to immediately available as defined as 24 seven anesthesia in order to offer VBAC is also false. So, ACOG came out in 2010 because in 2004, they made this immediately available recommendation. And we saw across the country a huge chilling effect in terms of VBAC access. 
and VBAC rates dropped down to their lowest. I think the lowest point was maybe 6% or 8%. I mean, VBAC was really hard to find in the United States. And unless you had money, unless you had the luck of living in an area that a hospital offered VBAC, or you had the money and means to travel to a hospital that offered VBAC, you were pretty much out of luck. So in 2010, ACOG, a few months after the NIH VBAC conference, said, hey, we heard you loud and clear. We know how our guidelines were interpreted, and it was never our intention to reduce VBAC access nationwide. And so we want to make it clear that while we see immediately available as an ideal situation, we also want to make very clear that under no circumstances should any hospital with a restricted VBAC policy use that policy to force women to have cesareans. And so the, the, the challenge is, is that women across America are told, well, we don't do that here. We don't offer VBAC here. You're not allowed to do that here. And women believe it because they don't know what the evidence says, they don't know what ACOG says, and they trust their doctor. And we should all have the luxury of trusting our doctors. But unfortunately in obstetrics, there are a lot of factors that impact the kind of information that comes out of your doctor's mouth. And in order to really be an advocate for yourself, you have to invest in your body and in your baby and in your family and get those facts so when you are sitting there and you hear something that is completely false, you can say, that's false. And I know that because ACOG said XYZ or this 2004 study said ABC. And I know that what you're saying isn't aligned with the evidence. Or you can just find another provider, which is what I really recommend if that's possible in your community. Because fighting during your pregnancy and especially during labor, is way, way less than ideal. Yeah. And and so that's the unfortunate situation that most that a lot of, of, of pregnant people are put into is that it becomes a combative situation, yeah. uh, which is unfortunate because it shouldn't be that way. Um, and, you know, and and in that sort of hopeful thinking, you have some people saying, well, you know what? Yeah, but nobody can force you to have a cesarean. Oh. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I heard the sigh. Tell me more. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, I used to participate a lot in online groups, and then I just got too busy and wasn't able to participate as much as I'd like. But I would see that all the time. You know what? You can just decline. You can just decline. And again, we have a difference between what is theoretically right and wrong and what happens in real life. What's theoretically right and wrong is that if you come into a hospital and they ban VBAC and you're laboring and you want a VBAC, the ideal theoretical situation is you walk in and you say, I decline a repeat cesarean, and they say, we will respect that decision, and they permit you, God, what a bad word choice, you labor in that facility, and they support you laboring as opposed to harassing you or haranguing you or threatening you. That's the ideal theoretical situation. And that does happen in some hospitals across the country. But the reality is for most women, especially poor women and women of color, is that if you go in to a hospital that doesn't allow VBAC and you say, I decline a cesarean, 
you are going to be threatened with CPS. You're going to have the police called on you in the hospital. You're going to have um, maybe be threatened with a psychiatric evaluation. And this is what happens. This is the reality. And we often do not hear those stories because those women are busy living life. And also this is an extension of what they have experienced their entire life as poor women or women of color. And I just heard more stories this past weekend, um, speaking with black midwives in the LA area. And as a white woman who has never experienced such treatment, you just listen in complete horror that this is what's happening. Yeah. And, it, and it happens all the time. And it completely counters ACOG's guidelines and it's illegal. But unless you have the money and means to have your attorney on speed dial, hospitals that want to be hostile can be. And it is also we're then sending these moms into into motherhood, into parenthood oh, with trauma. Yes. That's the that's the place from where they're starting their yes. mothering. From a place yeah. of trauma, which is, it shouldn't be. Like, th it should be the opposite. They should be cheered on, cheered and rooted for. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. And so um, to, to say, to advise someone, just decline a cesarean, I did it and it turned out great. Well, there's a lot of factors that go into why it turned out great. The staff, on, the staff who were there at the time you came into the hospital how you present yourself. Are you a white woman walking in or are you a black woman? You are very likely going to be treated differently. And for white people who cringe at that statement, I know it may be hard to hear. I know it may be hard to understand, but it is the reality. And we as white people don't experience it because the world engages with us differently than if you were black and walking into that hospital. So race plays a part, class plays a part, all of these factors impact the medical care that you receive. And in order for any of us to work towards changing that reality, the very first thing we have to do is step up and say, this is the problem. Racism is a problem in America and racism impacts our healthcare and, re and racism impacts feedback rates and it impacts how families start. And it's, and so it's so important to be completely and totally clear on what the issues that we're fighting and racism in healthcare is one of them. Indeed. And, and, and it extends to not just if you're black, but also any people of color. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also age as well. If you're a yes. teenage mom, you, you're going to have a harder time. So, and we need to acknowledge all these things that that that's part Absolutely. of our system and a big shout out to birthmonopoly.com. Cause that's, <laughs> A way, like I'll put it out there as a resource for people to go read a little bit more about their rights and, and how to get help. Because I know that Kristen all, at one point even had a hotline or a warm line where you could call her if you were in labor with a situation that you were being discriminated against and it was affecting your care. Yeah, so, Kristen's awesome. She is. Yeah, we love her. Um, <laughs> so, and I've also loved talking to you today. This has been fantastic. Jen, aside from vbackfacts.com, what other resources are there out there for moms looking for a VBAC that you would recommend? 
Well, ICANN is a great resource for in-person support. Um, they have chapters all across the country, uh, all across America and the world. And I think sometimes when you're choosing to birth in a way that only 11% of American women end up birthing, it can feel really isolating. And to be able to reach out and find other people to connect with is great. I know that there's also birth network and um, improving birth chapters are going to be rolling out. And also just uh, holistic moms and other ways to get support is really, really important during that process. Mm. And of course, your site, because I you've got great information there, and you've dedicated the past how many years now? <laughs> It'll be ten years this November. Ah. My little guy will be a decade old. Ah. I can't even believe it. Congratulations! Yes, yeah, so a decade oh, of your life since sweetie. you know, yeah, you were with the poppy on the computer. I know, <laughs> right. I know. And so there's a lot of resources up on vbackfacts.com, and I also travel across the country, and I offer. Uh, consulting via phone to professionals and to parents who just want to talk through their birth or talk through what's going on with them or review the evidence. And um, I love what I do. This work is so important. It touches so many lives. And I really feel so strongly that the foundation of growing our family should be one of love and respect. And that's not what a lot of parents feel. And I'm working to change that. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for all your hard work and all the effort that you put into this for the past 10 years and improving VBAC outcomes. And so we're going to say it one more time. So is that the best way that listeners can reach out to you or figure out what you're doing? Just go straight to VBACFacts.com? Absolutely. And from there, you can hook up with my online training, my speaking engagements, and my consulting services. Yeah. And your blog has a lot of information there, too. So all kinds yes. of level of connection. Yay. And I would like to offer to your readers if they would like to get a free report on the top five uterine rupture myths that continue to percolate through L&D units and message boards online, you can go to vbackfacts.com backslash rupture report, all one word. And for the five simple steps of planning a VBAC, and yes, there's only five. It's not 50,000. It's five simple steps to planning a VBAC. You can go to vbackfacts.com backslash vbac checklist, also one word. Fantastic. Jen, thank you so, so much for doing this and, and being on the show today. It was lots of fun. It was. Thank you for having me. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at Birthful, so come say hi. And we also have a Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Birthful. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Reverie Powerbeds and at Aeroflow Breast Pumps. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty mama about her birth story or stories here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey. 
Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening.